All right, well, with that, let's just pray, and then we'll get into our, our message tonight. Father in heaven, Lord, we're thankful today that we can come to an end of another week, but a beginning of another Sabbath. And we ask your blessing on our time together as we consider your word. We come in Christ's name. Amen. So, as I was thinking about what to talk about following up this um, series, I thought about uh, the one of the last great things that God is trying to do is really the great reset that he's trying to be involved in is to rearticulate um, his love for mankind and in so doing, hopefully stir love in their hearts for one another. The last uh, revelation uh, to a dying world will be a revelation of God's character of love. And so that's what I want to talk about this weekend. I'll talk about that tonight uh, by way of introduction and then looking at that more fully during the Sabbath school time here in Haskell um, for our new believers and for others who come as well. I think you'll appreciate that. And then at our 11.30 time as well, um, looking at this. You know, there's a lot of texts in the Bible that talk about um, love as it relates to God's law that are very, very clear and easy to understand, but there are also many texts where people get confused. So we're going to look at some of those texts over the next couple of weeks as well. So I think it'll be a fruitful time together. So part one, the power of God's love. Part two, God's law and his love. And part three, the final victory of God's love. That's going to be this weekend as we look at these things together. Now Harvard did a study um, not so long ago talking about love. And they basically said love is all that matters. There are two pillars of happiness. One is love and the other is finding a way of coping with life that does not push love away Conclusion of the study, not in a medical but psychological sense, for those of you who look at things through the lens of psychology, I heard several of these people today in my Daniel class. Uh, they did an excellent job in their presentations. I won't point them out, but I was blessed. Conclusion of the study, not in a medical or psychological sense, is that connection is the whole shooting match. Happiness is only the cart, but love is the horse. Um, so this idea of connection is uh, related to love. And if you don't feel connected, then there's a problem. And people, especially over the last few months, are feeling less and less connected, more and more isolated as a result of whether it be a fear of disease or the diseased or fear of violence. Homicides are up the highest they've been on record in this last year in America. So people are not only feeling disconnected, they are disconnecting others and themselves from life itself. There are 330 million Americans, um, yet we're lonely and getting lonely, lonelier. In a recent study, 61% of those surveyed were lonely. And this is like a sample in America 
of over 10,000 people. So a fairly large sample. It wasn't like three people. It was 10,000 people. And 66% of the people you meet, 6 out of 10, almost 7 out of 10, are lonely. Lonely. Um, a report led by the health insurer Cigna found nearly a 13% rise in loneliness since 2018 when the survey was first conducted. And men are especially lonely. Men. So ladies, just be aware of that. Men are especially lonely. Now there might be a reason for that. You say, I know why they're lonely, at least the men I know, but loneliness appeared to be more common among men. The survey found 63% of men to be lonely compared with 58% of women. And surprisingly, what age group do you suppose is most lonely? Gen Z, people who were 18 to 22 years old when surveyed, had the highest average of loneliness. Much more lonely than people my age or Bill Crick's age. Much more lonely than even people my dad's age. So people in your demographic, how many of you are between 18 and 22? Anyone here? Lonely, lonely. <laughs> That's what the statistics are saying. Let's look at that person next to you and say, are you lonely? Maybe here it is completely different because you have such a tight-knit community and so you don't have any of these problems. But, you know, I've had actually people talk with me here and tell me even though I'm in the dorm surrounded by people I'm lonely even though I come to church I'm lonely so a high loneliest lonely score so where are people turning in the midst of their loneliness well some are turning to drugs alcohol other things to self-medicate and that sense of reward or euphoria that comes they're searching for it. So marijuana increases their dopamine by 175, 175%. That makes them feel pretty good for a few moments. And alcohol, 200%. Usually they do those two together. Nicotine, 225. Cocaine, 400%. And then crystal meth, 1,000%. But that's only once usually because they burn out their brain cells when they do that, and they never can have that feeling again. They call it chasing the ghost. They never can get that feeling back again. So people are turning this way. Of course, people also are turning to their cell phones and social media. But what they found, interestingly enough, is 73% of very heavy social media users are considered lonely as compared with 52% of light users. So the more you're using your cell phone, like for instance, if you're actually using your cell phone during this message, looking at your social media, you're lonely. And you're bored with what's happening here and you're reaching out to someone that probably doesn't care that much about you. They might give you a like here and there because they also are looking for dopamine. 
um, as well. At least that's what the research shows. So now you can text me if you think what I said was offensive, and I actually will monitor now <laughs> on my own social media <laughs> what's happening here. So um, I thought that was a very interesting statistic, though. The more people are on Instagram, the more lonely they are. Of course, you know, there's a controversy between hate and love, and this is between Christ and, of course, Satan. And Satan comes not but to hurt, kill, and destroy. He wants us to not experience love, not experience connectedness. He wants us to experience hate, hurt, and destruction. But Christ said, I have come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. So that's the controversy that surrounds each one of us every day, all day, and those that we know, some of which we might not even know are experiencing great feelings of loneliness and desperation. So I thought we'd look at this psalm tonight. Do you recognize it? <laughs> totally, okay. <laughs> You said that? We want to come up and read it for us then. Oh. So I thought we'd look at a key psalm, which may or may not be familiar to you. But this psalm is kind of like a go-to psalm that I share with people um, that I sense don't understand the love of God. And this psalm is Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. We'll start with Psalm 139, but let's start with verse 13 through 16. And why don't you read it with me on the screen? For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. What is this talking about? Even before you were born, when you were being formed, who knew about you? Who was overseeing your actual gestational period? And who was looking at the entire ultrasound before the parents ever even looked at it? You saw your substance. So, you know, a lot of people debate, when is it that life begins? Well, the Bible is pretty clear here. It begins uh, before you're born. And... Uh, anybody that's confused about that will also get confused about whether or not they should end a life. Because if they don't think there is life before, um, you know, delivery, they're going to be more apt to say, well, if I have a particular reason to maybe end this pregnancy, I'm just going to do that. And that is murder. And many people are involved 
in murder and uh, aborting children that are in this age demographic of 18 to 22. And I just looked at the statistics of why they do that. Well, I can't afford the child. I don't want to be a single parent. I, many, many reasons. But uh, this is fairly clear. I knew you before I formed you, it even says in Jeremiah. Wow, so God actually knew you before you knew anything about you and before your parents knew you. He knew that. How many think we need a great reset in our thinking concerning these issues? Hello? You know, sometimes people talk about the evils of communism because of its godlessness that led to the death of millions and various dictators or atheists, dictators, have been involved with killing, you know, millions of people. But what about the people that are making decisions every day in this country to end lives? They're kind of like dictators as well, aren't they? Deciding who lives and dies. So, you know, <clears throat> the Seventh-day Adventist position on this, someone asked me the other day who was attending our meetings, thought I might just mention it briefly here, is summarized with some of these points. There's a more full statement on the... Adventist website, God upholds the value and sacredness of human life. Amen? Amen. Number two, God considers the unborn child as a human life. Some people are confused about that, but our church is not confused about that. The unborn child is a human life. Three, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, places abortion within its scope. Thou shalt not kill, is one of the commandments. It's okay to go to a church that says, well, you know what, we, we are kind of uh, known for keeping the commandments. We like to talk about the fourth commandment, which is a wonderful commandment, because it shows God's intimate concern for us, where he enters in time and space to spend time with us personally, and who would, like, who would not want to respond to that kind of love where a God comes down and says, I'm going to enter in that time and space. But often we don't talk about this one, thou shalt not kill, with its implications of abortion, but I think we should talk about it more. Human beings are stewards, number four, of whatever God has entrusted to them, including the lives of the vulnerable, and especially the vulnerable unborn. The Seventh-day Adventist Church considers abortion out of harmony with God's plan for human life. It affects the unborn, the mother, the father, immediate extended family members, the church family, and society with long-term consequences for all. And one of those is guilt. Guilt. You don't know how many times I've talked to people on this campus that have come to one of our programs for depression and anxiety that when they were younger, made some decisions they shouldn't have made that led to other decisions that they now regret, and they're walking around with overwhelming guilt. 
And I would say to such, God still cares about you. He still loves you. Even though you may regret what you did. And if you want to read something that can give you hope and help, my favorite text is 2 Chronicles 33, verse 1 through 17, that talks about the most evil man in the Bible and how he was involved in sacrificing many children to Moloch. And God saw that as horrendous and abominable and actually reached in and sent Manasseh with, it says, hooks <laughs> to captivity. And then Manasseh began to think and reflect on what he had done. He actually changed his mind. He repented, confessed his sin. He repented. God heard him, and then he came back and was able to build up the weak parts of the nation and different things at the end of his life. The impact was still there, but there is forgiveness. And of course, you know, in Ezekiel 16, you have the worst lady in the Bible. And even at the end of that long chapter, it says that God made atonement for that lady and remembered his covenant with her. So if you've made a mistake, don't make a mistake if you can help it. Amen? Amen. And, uh, but if you have made a mistake, God's mercy and his love and his forgiveness are still there. Amen? So could we spend a long time on the subject? Of course. And maybe we should at some other time. But this text that we begin with in Psalm 139 shows God's great love for us in the midst of a culture that does not have high regard for human life. So number one, God fully formed you. Well, let's keep going in verse 1 through 6 in Psalm 139. Go ahead and read it with me. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me it is high, I cannot attain it. So he fully forms you, but he also fully what? He fully knows you. He knows your thoughts. He hedges you behind and before. How many think this is just wonderful, the comprehensive knowledge that God has of what you're even thinking? It says in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. They're higher than your thoughts. So Anybody you talk to, they're going to have some errors in thought. And one of the things we come to church for is we read God's word, which is his thoughts. And my words are spirit and life, it says in John 6, 63. And those actually alter our course, hopefully, at times to the right direction, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all the ways acknowledge him and he will what? Direct thy path. So God fully forms you and he fully knows you. Um, so this is, uh, this is something. You know, today I was thinking in my yard, I wish my son would see that the lawn needs attention. I'm so busy working on this 
sermon for tonight and my sermons for this weekend, I literally can't do anything else. I got to keep my, uh, my hind in in the seat and keep working and preparing the meals, spiritual meals for the weekend. And then I walked inside and my son said to me, Dad, could you help me start the weed eater? I, I, for some reason, I can't get it started, but I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want to work on the lawn. And I was like, Amen. praise the Lord. <laughs> I didn't even say anything, and he was thinking the same thing I was thinking. Amen. Amen. And this is what God wants. He knows our thoughts. He knows, you know, when they're kind of weird too. And I bet you he's always thinking, man, I wish they would start thinking this or that. You know, we're going to come to that later. Let's keep going. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 12. Go ahead, read it with me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light around me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike. What's this say? God fully forms you. He fully knows you. But he also fully does what? He follows you everywhere. He does not just follow you on Facebook or Instagram. He follows you everywhere. He follows you when it's light outside. He follows you when it's dark outside. He knows exactly what's happening. If you were to take wings in the morning, he would go after you. If you were to take scuba gear and go to the uttermost ports of the sea, you would go down there and right around that little coral bush at the bottom, he'd pop out. He's the divine stalker. He knows everything. And it's not a fatal attraction. It's a prenatal we've already seen. It's a beautiful attraction where he knows exactly. And he even knows, it says, if I make my bed in hell, that means the grave, Sheol. You know, he knows where people are buried. And he keeps record of them and says their spirit returns to God who gave it. We say that's the breath, and that is correct in one sense. But also the other thing, the spirit is the character. And he actually keeps an entire record of your character. A number of people ask me, coming to the meetings, what about cremation? Look, you're going to return to dust eventually unless you're a linen or some kind of mummy that had a lot of money to preserve yourself a long time. And so cremation just speeds up the dust process. Don't worry about it. God can put you back together again. Amen? So he follows you everywhere. He fully forms you. He fully knows you. He fully follows you. He fully follows you. And this is not a malignant following. How many of you have been followed by people that made you nervous? (laughs) 
Like the man said, just because I can't see them does not mean they're not following me. So I don't want to make you paranoid, but um, having God follow you, having God follow you is, is what the text is saying, and he knows exactly where you are, what's happening everywhere. Now, my other son, I won't name him, but it's not the oldest one. Um, <laughs> He, uh, he's an expert at following me on my phone. <laughs> he knows where everybody is. He knows where the jets are. He knows, you know, any family member, he goes, okay, they're crossing over this river in any far gone place. And he's very aware. But even he falls short of the text here in terms of following. Amen? <laughs> And by the way, just to, so you know, there are GPS systems on the vans here at the Institute. And so Dave Kaplan knows when you're going 75 or 80. He can see you on a screen. Anyway, but even more than that, God knows. Amen? That's good news. How do I know that he knows how fast you're going? Because he actually told me how fast I was going when I was taking the peppers in expedited fashion to the Institute. Can't have your peppers arrive late. Um, so, with all this information, now this is where I ran out of time to put the background slides in from Pastor West, who had been in an accident, so I was unable to reset all my slides for the Great Reset presentation. So this is not a snowstorm, this just means I ran out. With all this information, with all this information that God has, what do you think God thinks of you? Someone began crying. Who was that that started crying? <laughs> okay, right. What does God think of you? He knows every single thing about you. You know, I sometimes ask people that, and they'll tell me he doesn't think very much of me. In fact, I think he, he, he probably hates me. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't even know about me. But this psalm puts that all to sleep, doesn't it? He's known about you, all these different things. And the whole big thing the devil tries to get us to believe is that God doesn't care about us. That he's out to get us. He's not out to get us. He's out to keep us. And that's what these next verses tell us. I think these are some of the most important verses in the Bible. Read it with me. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. Now the context here is the thoughts that God is having towards who? Us. Before we're born, everything we do, everywhere we go. So the thoughts, you know, this could be just general thoughts God's having, random thoughts, you know, about all the solar systems and stuff. But I think the context of the psalm saying, no, 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 this is the thoughts he has about you. How great is the sum of them. Now, Jeremiah 29, 11 is the most searched text for years, except during COVID, when another couple took... It's placed for, for many years in a row. It's the, the most searched text. And you think, I think, I, I think you can tell why. 
I know, this is God talking to his people, while they're in captivity, while they're in Babylon, he told them they're going to be there for 70 years in verse 10. And then he says, even though you're in captivity, even though you totally messed up, I have thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. And that word Lord is Adonai, promise keeper. I have thoughts, I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil. Can you say hallelujah? To give you a what? A future and a hope. (laughs) So even though these people had, again, totally compromised themselves in many terrible Babylonian things, He still had thoughts towards them. Towards them. Think about that. Thoughts toward them. I don't know how that works. Like, you know, if I was going to make an emoji or something, is that how you say that? I would say, kind of like a microwave, you know. I know the thoughts I have towards you. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God wants you to have a hopeful future that goes on forever. Is that good news? You know, the atheist gives up all this and says there's nothing. There's no God. And I sometimes ask atheists when I meet them, and I meet quite a few of them, said, so do you really hope that what you believe is true or do you hope it's untrue? Most of them will say, really, I wish it wasn't true. <laughs> and it's not true, but I have to come to that. Let's keep going and finish this most pivotal apex of the psalm. How precious also your thoughts to me, O God, how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be what? More in number than the sand, and when I awake, I am still with you. This is how many thoughts God has about you. I found a box in my garage. There are many boxes in my garage. It wasn't hard to find a box in my garage, but this was a special box because it was a box of the letters between myself and Luminitsa when she was not even my fiance. She's now my ex-fiance, but she was my ex-girlfriend before she was my fiance because she had become my fiance. I understand what I'm saying. And I found this box of letters. She actually found it too and she was reading, isn't this nice what you wrote to me? (laughs) And we were laughing about how stupid these letters were, but how endearing they were. You know? And think about God's box that he's written about you. How precious also your thoughts to me, O God, how great is the sum of them. Have you ever happened on a box of your forebears' love letters. Things they were writing to each other. 
I found some things my grandfather was writing to my grandmother. I found some things my dad was writing to my mom. I think they're all burned up now in that fire in their house, but man, when I found them, I just couldn't stop reading. I was like, man, I got to read more of this. And that's really what the Bible is as well. It's his thoughts towards it. How many think we should be reading more of it? If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. How much sand is there? What's the number of the sand? I asked Google because always in times of great need of knowledge, I <laughs> asked my friend Google. You know what Google said? Of course, it had an answer within seconds. Maybe not a serious answer, but an answer nonetheless. Earth's beaches, this is not all the sand, just the beaches, and these are not beaches, I know, someone pointed that out to me already, contain roughly 5,000 billion billion, five sextillion grains of sand. That's just the beaches. That's not the sand dunes. That's not the other deserts. And this text is saying he has that many thoughts Look at that person next to you and say, you are a big, precious deal. <laughs> Some of you are nervous saying that to the person you're next to. <laughs> you're saying, I'd rather not say that. But you're representing God, not yourself at this time. Amen? <laughs> Some of you actually enjoyed, I noticed, I won't point out who, but some of you actually enjoyed saying that to each other. And some of you... Were, where's Aiden? Aiden was always saying things th that I, he says, oh, that was cringeworthy, he says, about some things I say. And it's okay. Whenever I shake his hand, you know, he's like, okay, we don't need a whole manipulation of my, my arm. Um, but Earth's beaches contain 5,000 billion billion. These are the thoughts God has about you. This love of God for you is vast. Vast. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by what? Name. You are mine. I'm reading Exodus because I'm going to Egypt in a couple weeks on a tour. So I'm reading the Exodus through again. What really struck me is the book of Exodus that doesn't name the Pharaoh just says Pharaoh. But it starts to name the nobodies. These Hebrew moms, these midwives, gives their names and says, look at that. He treats you like you're nameless and nobody. But not only I know what you're doing, I know your name. And he knows your name. I remember I was talking to Elder Wilson one day, not Ted. This was not a Ted talk. This was the real deal with Neil. Neil Wilson, Ted's dad. And he came right up to me. He said, oh, you're Donnie McIntosh. Your sister's name is Melody Joy, even though her middle name. Your brother's name is Douglas Charles. 
Isn't your dad Charles? His real first name is Donald, but he goes by Charles, right? And your mother, Dorothy Lenora. And then he went through a host of like 30 other names. I was like, this guy's like an idiot savant. This guy is like, he memorized the phone book. People that know your name, I mean, doesn't that impress you when people know your name? says of Napoleon that he knew all his troops' names, and he could speak their names and also a little bit of their language. And he had multiple divisions in his army. He would go to the front lines and would call out all the people their names. And this rallied the troops, and this is one of the reasons they believe he was so successful, because he knew the names of his troops, and God knows your name. You know, in Revelation, it pictures God's people as the 144,000 or a great multitude from every nation of all tribes, peoples, and tongues. And he knows everyone's name. He knows each individual by name and cares for each as if there were not another on the earth. What do you think of that? <laughs> Wow. So God fully formed you. He fully knows you. He fully follows you. And what was the next one? All right, guys. Let's do this again. He fully what? Number two? Okay, let's start over again, guys. Let's do it. He fully what? He fully what? Nice, and he fully loves you. Wow! You know, if someone's following you around and knowing all, everything about you, it's fairly certain they have an interest in you in some kind of way. I know when I decided that Luminitsa was going to be my wife, this was quite a long time before she knew this. Uh, I went to the... <laughs> center of the university. They had a big computer. Back then they didn't have personal computers. They had a university computer that took up a whole building. They had these tapes and so I remember these tapes and stuff and everything else. And then they print stuff off like, you know, you'd print stuff off and it looked like you got it from Russia or something. But you know, you had this big paper. It wasn't small papers either, like big papers from like a weird, awkward printer. So I went to my my friend. Well he wasn't really my friend. He was someone I could blackmail. And I said to him you know, I know a lot of things about you. And he goes, what do you want? And I said, I would like a printout of everything that Luminitsa Lacrimiora Constantinescu will be doing this semester. Not a problem, he said. And there I had, in my meaty little digits, the digitized records of where she was going to be at every moment. So I began to follow her. I was right there, even though it was two miles from my classroom, opening the door for her. She goes, why are you out of breath? I said, you know, you got to breathe. And God is like that. He totally knows. He doesn't have to have a printout. He knows. And he formed you. He knows you. He follows you and loves you. Isn't this a splendid thought? So what should our response be to a God like that?
Let's see this guy's response. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. This is his response. How many think this is a wonderful response? <laughs> Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty man, for they speak against you wickedly, or enemies take your name in vain. Okay. I don't know. When I first read these things, I was somewhat shocked. You know, he, it was going so well. He, he formed me. He, he, he fully knows me. He follows me. He, he loves me. Oh, that you would slay. This is not the first thing I would think of. How many of you are thinking, David uh, maybe took uh, some kind of pill? And you know what? I taught my kids this song when they were younger. Oh, God, you have searched me. And no, we sang the whole thing. But the people that wrote the song, they didn't have these verses in there. Like there's verses in the Bible that people just cut out, like deliver Alexander and Hermeneus to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. No one preaches on that, but I'm going to coming up. Anyway, the, what are these why is it saying this? And I was thinking about it, I was thinking about it, you know, sometimes in a Bible study, I'm just like, okay, so let's go down now to verse 20, uh, 21. And we just kind of skip this. But we're in the university now. We can't skip stuff like this. Right? What does this mean? What does this mean? Faith? You're a theology student. What does it mean? What do you think? Here. Well, no, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Man, she looked about as rubrous as a, uh, as a uh, radish. So... Oh, that you would slay the wicked. What does this mean? Your enemies take your name in vain. What does it mean to take God's name in vain? These are commandment breakers that are going against love, God's love. Because in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of who? Men, not of God. These are commandment breaking, unloving. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. These are not keeping his commandments, and therefore they're what? They're unloving. And what the psalmist is saying, after I, after I know such a loving God, he, he formed me, he, he, he does what? He fully formed me, he fully, he fully, he fully, and so what am I going to do? I'm going to fully Defend him. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? <laughs> By the way, notice something here. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. I'm not doing it. Vengeance is not mine, it's yours. You will repay. I will depart from them because they're bloodthirsty. They speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. But he hands it over to God to take care of it, right? He's defending God. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a what kind of hatred? Perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. And perfect love and perfect hate are essentially the same thing. Would you agree with me on that? <laughs> you test it out. You see... When I started to think about this, I realized, wait a minute. This is telling us another nuance of God's love, and that is that he enters into sin 
and law-breaking for us and actually is the recipient of all hate and bloodthirstiness that ever was. This is not like one of the Greek gods, not like one of the Roman gods, not one of like these gods that are aloof. This is a God who enters in. And the cross is a picture of his uncompromising infinite justice. The wages of sin is what? Well, that you would slay the wicked, right? One sin unrepented of is enough to close heaven. It was because man could not be saved with one stain of sin that Jesus came to die on Calvary's cross. That's how much he hates those who hate him and hates bloodthirstiness and vanity. He comes to die for just one of those things. And these verses are giving us a hint to think about the cross. Can you see that? How many can see that? God is not omnipotent in the sense he can do anything. He can only do those things which are consistent with his nature. He can't therefore readily pardon the sinner because he is a God of infinite justice. But neither can he readily punish the sinner because he's also God of infinite mercy. Here then was the divine dilemma. It's a dilemma. I love them, but I hate the sin. What am I going to do? How could he pardon the sinner without compromising his justice? How could he judge the sinner without frustrating his love? How in the face of human sin could he be at the same time a God of love and of wrath? How could he both pardon the sinner and punish his sin? How could a righteous God forgive unrighteous men without involving himself in their unrighteousness? Can you see this? This is the background of those verses that seem like just a, 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 just a blurt of something but it's actually the blurt that is related to the greatest blessing ever known. So it points out his infinite justice, but also his infinite mercy. In death, he took the sinner's place. He became flesh. He suffered in the flesh. He became sin. He became the very thing that's spoken of as being hated because sin is what? Taking God's name in vain, in vain do they worship me, teaching as commandments the doctrines of men. And he becomes the very most despised thing. Think about the most despicable thing you've ever done or anyone you know has ever done. And he identified with that for the sake, your sake. Man. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you see how these verses, which initially seemed like some kind of psychotic rant, are really not. They're actually... an expression of God's love. So how did this work? Well, because of his, how did it work? Because of his infinite worth. I found a picture of my two dogs from when they were young, Macintosh, or so-called Macintosh, named after the family. Um, Which of these are more valuable, the dogs or the ants? 
Do I have two ants named Macintosh? Do I pet them, feed them? No. Yeah, they receive infinite justice, don't they? No mercy. No mercy. Because they don't have the same worth as a dog. If you heard about the pastor killing his dogs like ants, I wouldn't have a job long here, right? Bad enough, I gave one of the dogs away to Pastor Wolper. That's on the edge of incorrectness. But which one has more dignity, the dogs? Well, what about this? These are some of my children once before they ate that um, silage that Pastor West spoke about when he was a bodybuilder. Anyway, this is Donnie, James, and who's that, Alec or Christian? I don't know. But they are... Which one of these has more dignity? Is it the dogs or the kids? If, I, if a push came to shove and, 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 and I had to get rid of one of them, would I get rid of the dogs or the kids? Okay, which one of these has more dignity? Christ, this is a picture of Christ, or the kids? Who has the most worth of any human, right? We're all very worthy, but we would have to say what? Worthy, worthy is the land that was slain, right? Doesn't diminish our worth at all because he places great value on us. Jesus, who is God, has more dignity than children or adults because he created us and owns us and is infinitely superior in every way. He has infinite dignity as the Son of God and as God. So how does it work? There was only one way. Only Christ, the God-man, could save us. As a human, he had no sins of his own for which an atonement needed to be made. As God, he has infinite value and could be offered for the sins of all. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. These verses in the psalm alert us to the power of the cross. One day a man was on the battlefield and he was getting a transfusion of blood. And he asked, whose blood is this? And they showed him the blood. They showed him the blood. And right there on the vial was written the name of General Eisenhower. <laughs> and the man couldn't believe it. My life is being saved by the blood of the top general. And your life is being saved by the blood of the top general. Hallelujah. The wonder of the blood the one of the cross is not the blood. It's whose blood it was and for what purpose it was said. And for whose purpose was it said? You. You. On the cross, infinite justice and infinite mercy kissed each other. And that is the definition of love sealed with the kiss of mercy and justice for you. Hallelujah. And that's what those texts, the more I thought about them, 
and all their afflictions, he was afflicted. That's what those texts are talking about. So let's see if you can remember. God fully what? God fully what? God fully what? God fully what? And that love was revealed most fully on what? The cross. So as a result, you should fully what? You should fully what? And then ask him to do what? Look at these last verses, which I didn't change. They should be 21 and 22, 23 and 24. Read it with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So ask him to do what? Search me. The hour of his judgment is come. We live in that. It says Revelation 14, 6 and 7, the everlasting gospel to preach to all, every nation, kindred, tongue and people. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. Search me, O God. Know me. Why? Why does it say know me? Is this a relationship? I know him. He knows me. Search me. Know me. Try me. (laughs) See if there's any wicked way in me. I don't want anything coming between me and you, God, or others. And then do what? Lead me. Lead me where? In what way? The way that's lasting? No. The way that's what? Everlasting. What do you think of this? What do you think of this psalm? What do you think of God's love? How many of you think you could give this Bible study to somebody yourself? Oh, let's just see. The psalm teaches us that he, what? Fully. As a result, we fully defend him, accept him. And what do we say to him? You can trust someone who loves you that much to lead you that far. So if you haven't decided to follow Christ, how many of you think this would be a good time to do that? It would be a great time to say, God, search me because I know you love me. Know me because I already know you know everything about me. Try me because... (laughs) You were in all points tempted like as I am, you know, the temptations. See me, lead me in the way 
It's not just lasting, but that's everlasting. And this psalm then represents what? The great reset of love. This is what God's trying to do in my life and in your life and everyone you ever talk to. Reset everything on the basis of his love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you tonight for this reminder of your love. So go with us and uh, may we not only know the psalm but embrace what it means for us individually, personally. In Christ's name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.